I gotta clear my throat or something. That's on my <coughs> list. <coughs> I should put this on. Ha! Hey everybody, welcome back to Freebcast. My name is Rob Murray, I am your host, and Freebcast is brought to you by the Free Press Media, and recorded at the KMSU Studios on the campus of Minnesota State University, Mankato. My guest today is writer, musician, and former Free Press journalist, Joe Tugas. Hey Joe, say Hello, hi. Hello, Rob. Uh, Joe has been a friend of mine for about 25 years, which is about the same amount of time that I've been a journalist. Uh, Joe was kind of my, um, he's going to blush at this, but he was kind of my spiritual mentor when I started at the Free Press. Uh, he's a gifted storyteller. Anyone who knows him knows that. A brilliant writer, always super inquisitive, and I kind of wanted to be just like him when I was a young journalist right out of college, so uh, if, if we're being honest here. And since leaving the Free Press, Joe has launched a successful freelance writing and marketing business, reached new heights with its music. You might remember the best of Hank and Rita, a ballroom operetta, a play he wrote and performed with Anne Fee, to sold-out audiences for about a, about a year. A couple of years. A couple of years. Um, he plays uh, regular gigs around the Midwest with his regular band, The Fry. And whenever I hang out with them, I get this feeling that I just wish we had more time together. Um, so, Well, same here. If you're <laughs> looking for a reason why I asked Joe to be on the podcast... Um, What's the angle, if you will? There really isn't one. Joe was just sincerely one of my most, or one of the most interesting people that I've ever known. And that's why he's here. So welcome, yeah. Joe Tugas. Yeah, thank you. I think the, for the past couple of years, every time we see each other, always do is so we got we to gotta get together. Let's drink some more beer. Let's get, some, let's get together sometime. Yeah. So, well, here we are. And how nice it is to be talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that how, how always Appreciate goes, Joe? That'll get me, that'll get me there. <laughs> Uh, okay, so, so what's up? Thank you for that lovely introduction, Rob. You are very welcome, and and I have such warm memories of our our friendship at, that began at the Free Press and then uh, continued afterward. Although we obviously don't see each other as frequently as we did every True. single day, right? Man, there's a lot, a <laughs> lot of good times. There was also some uh, work involved too, I guess. Sometimes I don't remember that as Sometimes. much. Sometimes, uh, and we'll and we'll definitely get to that. But uh, before we go there, um, for people who don't know you, um, let's as I do with anybody who comes on the podcast. Um, tell me where you come from, where you grew up, and kind of the origin story of Joe Tukas. I was born and lived in Chicago, in the south side of Chicago, um, by the International Amphitheater, if you're familiar with Chicago, and that's um, near the, uh, the the stockyards, the whole um, Halstead and 43rd Street kind of uh, neighborhood. The stockyards uh, from that Frank Sinatra song? Yeah. The Union Stockyards. Union Stockyards? Uh-huh. Fantastic. And um, so grew up a few blocks from there, a few blocks from uh, Comiskey Park. So I uh, had to be a White Sox fan, even though I liked the Cubs. I was told early on, no, you can't like be- Because of where you're from, you're just, right. you get the right. White Sox? Yeah. <laughs> so grew up, uh, went to uh, St. Gabriel's Catholic School uh, till we left town when I was 12 and moved to, um, it was great, we moved to the woods in... Um, southern wisconsin a little town called edgerton uh we lived at uh in a little valley that was a dead end right by the rock river so and it was surrounded by forestry and hills so i went from one extreme to another and really grateful about that because i 
wound up enjoying the sounds of na- literally enjoying the sounds of nature as though it were some sort of rock concert. I'll never forget the particular day when I just went wandering into the woods thinking I might as well take a look at what this is all about and uh, found a little hill to sit on, laid back. This is like I'm a sixth grader. Laid back, closed my eyes, and listened to, I mean, everything. Everything from the wind to the crickets to the uh, cicadas. It was crazy. It was loud. And I I just plugged into rural life at that point and it was uh, so were you were you reluctant up to that point were you not really really reluctant because i resented it already because we my dad built that place every weekend he would go we would have to go from chicago on friday night uh take the two and a half hour drive to edgerton uh start working on the house a that involved work not interested you know and not interesting work mixing cement and uh, that type of thing. But it also took me away from... Uh, Wait, you were doing some of that work? You were, oh, plenty. You were mixing cement? I was mixing cement. I remember the sacrete bags, you get sacrete yeah. and you have to mix, uh, you have to throw sand in there um, and gravel if you're going to go for a certain type of uh, concrete. And uh, water, of course. I was fascinated with the cement because it looked like gray soup, you know, and yeah. then... Uh, yeah, and then when you washed out the wheelbarrow, it was it cleaned the wheelbarrow. It was like shiny. It was like a brand new wheelbarrow. How cement did that? I wasn't sure, but I was, you know, I remember these things vividly. So every weekend, you guys are up there building a house, building a house, and uh, I resented it because it took me away from the Brady Bunch and the Partridge Family on Friday nights, which was the hot shows. Um, had had to leave, but. I also got a great film education because there's a little town theater in Edgerton called the Rialto that my parents, they'd build the house or they'd work on the house and then they'd go into town, Edgerton, uh, and usually they'd go to the sportsman's bar, tip a few back and send me off to the theater. So no matter what was showing, you know, I was stuck. Sometimes I was stuck with bed knobs and broomsticks. And uh, sometimes I got Westworld, you know, and Soylent Green and all these great wow. movies, Count Yorga, Count Yorga Vampire, uh, The Return of Count Yorga, all this stuff that was uh, Charlie Varick. I, I could rattle them off. So but it was all these, whatever was playing that Whatever that was weekend. playing, I got to sit there kind of on my own, only child, uh, in a small, strange community. Poor Joey. I know. Popcorn. <laughs> six, Popcorn and his thoughts. Joey. Yeah. Still still frightened by the symphony of sounds in the forest. Oh, my God. Not frightened at all. Strengthened. strengthened. Emboldened. There you go. Uh, so that was, and then we moved to that uh, house, and I lived there through the 70s, graduated high school in 1980, went to college for a year and a half at the University of Wisconsin in Whitewater, um, sort of, well, what do I want to do? And saw a friend was... A friend's sister had graduated in journalism. I thought, oh, that sounds better than mixing cement, and took journalism because it sounded like writing, and I was enjoyed doing that in Whitewater. Or? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. When we we met for that story for Mankato Magazine at the brewery, I, I thought I heard you say you went to UW Madison. Did you go no, there? Univer- or did you considered going there. Um, considered going there, but Whitewater was closer to home, and I okay. was in a little rock and roll combo that uh, played every weekend, um, and it just was it was closer. And uh, no, I think I said at the gathering it was the University of Wisconsin, which it was, but it was University of Wisconsin 
white water. White water, gotcha. Right. Um, well, and we'll, and we'll get to that in a minute. But you did, I, I did read in your in your bio on your website, uh-huh. JoeTugas dot com. Hey, for people who want to check it out, I better go um, update that. You were you were in a garage band called The Press. Yes. Which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Well, first of all, tell me about that garage band. What was that like? Um, and why was it called the press? Well, uh, the the garage band. There were several. Uh, it was all just one string of garage bands. But we got to we formed in when I was a sophomore in high school. Me, uh, Mike Unruh, Mike Bua, and um, um, Tom Flaherty. So that's guitar, bass, drums, and trumpet. Uh, we formed a band. You had a trumpet? Yeah, yes. Yeah. We had to kick him out, though, because we had to tune down so low oh, to, for the trumpet that... Uh, <laughs> but we had a fine time. And we, we formed a, a band in my dad's garage um, called Phase 2. I was in charge of naming the band, so okay. I was very happy with that. So Phase 2 was named that because the way... I envisioned it. The Beatles were phase one. <laughs> I, I had big plans with, you know, the trumpet. I was going to ask you about your dreams for this band. Now I think I know. Yeah. And uh, we played, let's see, our first gig was for, um, my parents were involved in this Catholic uh, club called uh, Marriage Encounter, where you take your... It's like a retreat, and you get revitalized in your love for each other. Because, as we all know, you know, you married for a dozen or two year, two dozen years, and things get routine. So, marriage encounter was all about um, under the under the Catholic umbrella, uh, little meetings and talking to each other about the soft, sensitive stuff that uh, drew you to each other. And they came back uh, from that like love zombies they were just like oh god it was some sort of strange cult and next thing we started having other zombie couples over and then they're having parties all the time and uh singing and anyway they hired my band to play the marriage encounter party uh (laughs) at the carlton hotel in edgerton wisconsin where uh we stood the four of us a little awestruck at these old weirdos holding hands in a circle and singing songs like uh, that we had to learn, like I'll Never Find Another You by The Seekers. There's a new world somewhere they call the promised land, and I'll be there someday if you will take my hand. I'll, you know, that, that you was... still know that one. I oh, yeah. <laughs> Mo- most of it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's a fine little song. But anyway, so we did that. We had to learn The Impossible Dream, which came very handy because our trumpet player already knew it. So we, this was great. He talks about this. We uh, didn't play on Impossible Dream. It was his shining moment to solo. And they had taken a, uh, they had passed the hat to pay the band, uh, you know, tip jar. And so while he, he explains it to this day, he's uh, he's a pastor now in, um, in southern Wisconsin, but he, we just got together a while ago. He's like, yeah, I'm sitting there. That you can hear a pin drop. I'm playing the impossible dream. All these people are crying. They're crying so hard. They're just in, you know, awestruck with the moment. And off the side of my, <laughs> I look off to the side, and <laughs> you guys are diving into the money, <laughs> just diving into the money. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he, he's seeing his pay for the night just, 
just vanish. So, yeah, that was that was the origin of my. Uh, but did he my finish bands. the Impossible Dream? He did. You know, not a dry eye in the house. <laughs> So, which is great. And then the second, the second and last gig we had, I think, was uh, that town's eighth grade graduation party. So we uh, we rocked that one out. Brought in Steve Johnson. Were you still to, phase two at this to, point? No, we had. Um, no, yes, we were. I'm sorry, okay. we were phase two. Uh, we added an Alice Cooper tribute, and that was me. With, I put on the makeup and came out with a snake and sang "I'm 18." Actual and, snake? No, fur snake. Uh, a, a first name. Steve Johnson, uh, the guy we brought in to play guitar, he had a uh, like a, just a, a stuffed animal snake. Yeah, good enough, good enough. <laughs> they were eighth graders; okay. they didn't know. <laughs> so, at what, at what point does the, the did the band become the press? Next year, Garage Band was a few personnel shifts. We were escape. Then, I think by the time we were seniors, we I. And I don't know why I named it the press. I just thought it was a good name. Um, oh, I kind of do remember. We uh, one of our the trumpet player's dad ran the local newspaper, okay. the Milton Courier, and it had the font, um, kind of an old English font, you know. So I thought, ah, that would look cool on mm-hmm. like a business card. Right. The press in that old timey font, and uh, and it's just a good. The press just has a nice ring to it. it. Does. And and of course the double meaning mm-hmm. uh has a back then the you know the press was a respected uh, authority on topics, you right. know. <laughs> and uh so that uh that and we were the press and we were good too. I mean then we didn't have to do songs like, you know, I'll never find another you. Yeah. We didn't have to do the impossible dream. So, so way back at, at at that time was there you know, did your big dreams include you know the press or whatever incarnation of a band you would be in at the time um making it big and playing Wembley Stadium and being no my dream was to be like uh, Jeff Arnold Jeff Arnold was in a uh a, a local band at the time called um called Rainbow Bridge and he was a amazing he's the reason I um picked up the guitars because he came when I was in sixth grade he came and visited our class we had a drummer come in and a piano player come in and and uh, and Jeff came in with a guitar and it was it was just wow when uh, he played it was a lot of fun uh, to listen to and then um, then I decided I wanted to play guitar uh, and he continued he played every single night excuse me he played every single night in his band called uh, called Rainbow Bridge and he was amazing. He was he just had he was nuanced and he was subtly really knew how to play well. And I remember sitting watching him with um I think by now I'd graduated high school or maybe I was already a year into college. Uh, um girlfriend and I were watching uh them play and Jeff was taking a guitar solo on the Eagles cover, um I can't tell you why that uh, Timothy B. Schmidt sings on the Long Run album and has this really smooth guitar solo, real kind of simple, but Jeff is playing it, and I'm just kind of watching it, and, and I think Katie and I were having a conversation about uh, where to go, what you know, what future plans are and all that, and she goes, you know what worries me is I think that's what you want to do. You want to play guitar in nightclubs and <laughs> seemed like a good idea to me. Like, oh, hey, Katie. There you go. How so smart she was. She called it. She called it. She she hopped a, she hopped a bus, and uh, but yeah. So I didn't. I wasn't like no. I want to play stadiums or anything like that. And and I I, I kind of look back. 
there was no original music, you know, that never occurred to anybody in that community. You didn't, you didn't strive to be a songwriter. You strove to play identically to the record, you know. Oh, okay. And, and I regret that. I wish I would have been uh, influenced by something or it would have occurred to me to, you know, to strive for expressing yourself. But it's, it's a, I don't know, it, it didn't, didn't happen until much later in my time. So who were you listening to at that time? Alice Cooper, Beatles, John Lennon, uh, that'd be the, I'd say the three that leaped to mind. A lot of the, a lot of the pop music at the time was really good. Um, and, uh, it, it was exciting to then discover Frank Zappa, who I've been, you know, uh, enamored with ever since talking heads, you know, and, and I would get into these things because I had a nice sense of humor or a sense or a taste for the bizarre. And uh, I was just talking about Frank Zappa and discovering him through the album Zappa in New York, which has a lot of uh, really avant-garde horns and keyboards and rhythms that would upset the general public, you know, and, and I would kind of force myself to listen and see how long I could tolerate it. And it got longer and longer. And pretty soon it was just, it was just wonderful. Um, ex- I, I don't, I wouldn't call it experimental. Cause I mean, he, it was all note for note and he'd written it down very, uh, very precisely for his band. But I remember taking it into the kitchen at the restaurant where I worked and really upsetting the staff, uh, the waitresses. My friend Dan and I dug it, and uh, he, you know we were we were really solid friends and had similar music. We discovered this stuff together, and uh, but boy, mm, the waitresses who had to come back and forth with trays of food and the, the look on their faces—they were just upset, upset. <laughs> so, well, speaking of Zappa, um, one one of the great stories that you have, I think, is you actually interviewed Frank. Zappa. Yeah, yeah. That was how did uh, that come about? Persistence, um, uh, persistence on the telephone, and a slight bit of fraud. <laughs> uh, but the long or the short version is he was. I'm, you know, this is now Mankato, nineteen eighty five or something. I'm still in school, college. I'm working at the Reporter, writing a. Uh, I think at that point I was just writing a column. The reporter is the student newspaper. The reporter is the student newspaper at Minnesota State University, Mankato, at the time called Mankato State University. If I accidentally say MSU, forgive me, because it's we, we like to just call it Minnesota State, Mankato. Um, so yeah, but Frank Zappa finds himself on uh, in the middle of this controversy. There was a movement led by a uh, a group of of. Uh, people in Washington called the Parents Music Resource Center, and they wanted to put warning labels on albums because Prince had a song uh, about uh, masturbation and and another band had a song about uh, torture and another band had a song about Satanism. So they made the, and it's, that's just manna from heaven for talk shows, you know? Right. And so they, they're going on all the talk shows and they're staining a clear case at like, you know, we just need to label this. So parents have information and the record industry was pretty silent about it. Uh, with the exception of Frank Zappa, who said, well, wait a second, this approaches um, censorship. If not um, directly, it has fallout of stores not stocking this stuff because you are you think this song is about Satanism, whereas it's actually about you know surgery or something like that. There's a lot of, he said, he was just raising this pretty cool point of like, 
who gets to decide this stuff, you know? And he talked about his own experience having, um, like, MGM take parts of his songs out of of, of the uh, recording because they thought it was something dirty when, in fact, it was quite the opposite or whatever. Anyway, so I find myself really intrigued about this. And um, I had a buddy, Mike Flaherty, who worked for the Free Press's um, ownership chain, Ottaway, Ottaway Newspapers yep. at the time. He was their Washington, D.C. correspondent. Zappa then was, uh, he got himself to testify before um, Congress or before a Senate committee uh, because these, th- this group created a hearing. There was no, there was no legislation being considered. They just wanted publicity. So, and their husbands on the committee said, sure, including Al Gore. Um, but they said, yeah, let's have a big thing that became a gigantic media event, international media event. So Frank Zappa got himself in to testify along with John Denver and D Snyder of uh, twisted sister. So, I started calling my friend Mike Flaherty said I can get you a pass to this if you want to come out of you know media credentials I just have to be him (laughs) you know (laughs) uh, and hope they don't check too close so while I'm doing I said yeah that'll be great I decide to call Frank Zappa's publicity line to start inquiring about whether or not I could interview him and I, they just said, oh, let me switch you over to this. Okay, let me switch you over here. And I kept pitching it. Now, I worked. Uh, is that me? That's I'm you. sorry about that. I worked as a sports stringer on Friday nights at the Free Press. A couple of hours taking scores over the phone. So technically, I worked for the Free Press, right? Wouldn't yeah, you say? Sure. Okay. Well, the Free Press subscribed to the Associated Press newsfeed. So in a way... You could say I'm with the Associated Press. <laughs> so not, not really, but okay. <laughs> so as they they're like, okay, who are you? I said my name's Joe Tungus, and you're with. I write for the Associated Press because the Associated Press did run some of my stuff. Okay, all right. <laughs> so they're like, okay, and then I get to the top brass. I get to Jane Friedman, who I learned later is a major player in in discovering Patti Smith and discovering, uh, I, I think, the Velvet Underground, and, and just she was a heavy hitter. I didn't know it at the time, just remembered her name, because she said, uh, all right, now, w- w- what's your plan with this? I said, well, I'd, I'll write it for the Associated Press, of course, but I'd also like to do a, a magazine piece for uh, possibly um, uh, The Progressive. I listed off all these magazines. She said, well, I got to check with Frank, and it would be Monday if you can do it. And this was Friday. So I said, okay. Hang up. I roll the dice. I fly to D.C. Not all I know is I'll be able to go to the hearing at least. But uh, You just had the money? Yeah. For yeah. a flight as a college student? Yep, yep. Uh, I was married at the time. On a lark? Okay. I was married at the time, and, and Mary had money. So, and she gave first wife. Yeah. She gave it to me and, uh, she said, good Godspeed son. Good for her. And yeah, well, she was excited about this as I was. So, um, so I land at the airport. I go to the nearest phone. I call Jane Friedman to see if this is on or not. Cause if it is, it's going to be like tomorrow or whatever soon the next day. And uh, I go, yes, Jane there. Um, no, Jane's out. I go, Oh, 
this is my name's Joe Tugas. I was go- oh she go- he goes oh yeah wait a minute there's a note here interviews on for tomorrow 10 a.m. at the uh, at the uh, Capitol Hotel or I don't remember the name of the hotel but it's going to be me Frank Sample and it happened and. So in that moment, I mean, he's he's still like a, a big deal for you, right? I mean, he was like crazy big deal, yeah, the biggest deal at that point. So how so, did you feel at that point? I mean, were you were you nervous? Did you yeah, feel intimidated I, to? Talk I never to him? prepared. I never prepared more for an interview um, because he did not tolerate fools lightly. You know, he he was notorious for sending reporters trembling down the hall. You know, and I knew this, and 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 I read interviews with him all the time, and I. So I, and I really studied up on this issue, like no reporter ever did, at least from his point of view on Mm. it. He was calling attention, and nobody ever followed up, on this um, tax bill that needed um, Senate approval, and it was to tax blank recording tape uh, in order to provide, uh, and the tax bill would give like five cents for every blank cassette sold to the record companies, to a special fund for the record companies to allegedly use to hire new and upcoming talent. It was HR 2911. And he was saying, he was saying, this is all this, this media circus is just to get this tax bill approved that nobody's talking about. And it's an unfair tax on the consumer. And the record company is saying it needs it because people are buying blank tapes to pirate or copy albums instead of buying it. So we need to be compensated. It's only fair. And nobody was talking about that except him. So I brushed up on that issue. And, and then, so I attended the hearing, which everybody can see it's on YouTube and all that. His testimony was fierce and funny and angry. And the senators who were uh, questioning him just hated him. And uh, it was a, it was a moment of art in and of itself, his opening statement, as well as his back and forth with people. So I interviewed him the next day at that hotel room. Um, he was, uh, he was sitting, he didn't get up and shake my hand or anything like, Hey, nice to meet you. He was sitting there like exhausted and he had, uh, it was a big hotel room. He was sitting, uh, sitting on like an easy chair. His feet were on the coffee table, and he was wearing fuzzy red socks. That's what I remember. He was a very serious, sad, almost angry guy wearing fuzzy red socks and smoking a lot. I smoked at the time, so we shared a few smokes. I let the tape recorder go, and I asked him about all this stuff. Jane Friedman said, you have 15 minutes, and I think we talked for like 45. So it was cool. And... And I was straight journalist. I was not fanboy. Do you still have the tape? Yeah. Yeah. Does it work? Uh, yeah, I was just, I don't have the tape. I do have the tape. I have both the cassette tape and I transferred it to CD a long time ago. And I just found it yesterday. As a matter of fact, I was going through a bunch of old stuff and there's a CD, a blank CD of mine that I wrote Zappa interview. So I, I assume that's it. That sometime. Oh yeah, sure. A young Joe Tugas. A young Joe Tugas. Serious smitten. journalist. And trying to be very serious journalist, and uh, but the I'll tell you. So, you know my feeling toward him at the time. He was just a hero. Um, and as we're talking about this, I I asked him, and I, I was even though I studied up, I was over my head with this guy. I mean, intellectually, he was just throwing stuff at me that I was I was barely able to hang on to. But I held on. And at one point, I said, "Well, how is this?" Because he's he's like, "Where's Prince?" to defend his songs. Where's Kenny Rogers? He said, when Kenny Rogers comes out, I'll go home. 
because I asked him, like, why do you feel you have to do this? Because he's not representing anybody. He's just representing himself. So he was really disappointed that nobody else showed up except John Denver and Dee Snyder, and they just knocked it out of the park, too, at that hearing. That Dee Snyder. I have not seen the John Denver. Well, maybe I have. I have seen that. It's just not as interesting or compelling as the D. Snyder one. The D. Oh, Snyder one is, <clears throat> is brutal. Is unbelievable. <clears throat> yeah. So was Zappa at the height of his fame at this time when you were I talking think he, to him? I think he made a lot of, uh, uh, or I think he became a lot more famous uh, as a result of that. Of being, the, I don't know if he became any more beloved, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I think people for the because he made all he was in the he was the only one providing the opposite uh, equal time, if you will, of uh, of that event that issue so and he had provocative things to say and he got yelled at so he got um on the news so i think a lot of people said um well that frank zappa so you were working for the reporter at that time yeah how long did you spend there two years were you there a couple years where the reporter yeah uh 82 through 80 82 to 85 i think maybe 86 you spent a good amount of time there yeah um were you Covering the arts for the most part? Did you cover no, news? No, I covered news. Um, started as a news reporter. I covered what they then called the minority beat. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. <laughs> so, spent a lot of time at the International Students Office at the, uh, and I'm really grateful for this because I was there just a few years after they got the uh, um, Alternative Lifestyles office established. It was just um, a, a small, small office near the um, reporter, and I got to meet. It was right uh, next door, right? It was, pretty yeah. much, yeah. The, it was it was housed within the counseling center, so which itself was just an office uh, with uh, a few small mini offices. One of which was uh, the uh, alternative lifestyles, and I got to meet and and befriend Jim Chalgren, oh. and that. So I'm really grateful for that. I mean, they just celebrated their 40th uh, anniversary of the of the office now the LGBT center. Um, and he was he was a real interesting guy. I was as apprehensive as any you know guy from the woods in Wisconsin can be about alternative lifestyles, and quickly was uh, was uh, educated, I guess, to like oh, this guy's brilliant. So he's got he has sort of mythic status mm-hmm. in this community as being just way ahead of his time, just a, a trailblazer, pioneer, all those things. Yeah. What what was it about him? I, I never met him. What what was it about him that was so magnetic? Oh, his persistence, his I think he really believed that people would catch on a little quicker than they did, you know, in okay. terms of civil rights and equal rights. And and uh so he was he was persistent and he knew he knew the mechanics of getting things done. He knew um how to um, you know, propose ordinances or how to get support and or at least who to contact but he was what doesn't come across in all the um uh recollections of him uh of of late was how funny he was he slayed me i mean he was uh he was just a riot um i'm trying to and i think ojampa was interviewing because Brian and I were talking about Chalgren and just how funny he is. And Brian's like, yeah. So I'm interviewing him for a, a piece, very serious piece about, you know, um, trying to get, I don't know what the issue was that Brian was right about, but he's getting Jim Chalgren's point of view in there. And okay. He's done taking notes. And Brian goes, uh, do you have a title you want me to put? And, and Chalgren goes, ah, just say local fag. <laughs> And he was always doing that kind of stuff. And I was at a panel. I was at a panel when they were trying to get um, 
an ordinance passed, you know, that you can't discriminate in terms of housing in Mankato uh, based on the subject of sexual orientation. Just like, you, you know, you can't discriminate against gay people who want to rent an apartment from you. Well, big hoopla. And there's and, and, and so Shalgren and a bunch of people, they, they uh, have a, I guess, a press conference at the library to just answer questions, to just introduce themselves like a group of people. And, um, and they're talking very seriously about... Um, you know the the struggle, the history, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, and somebody said, uh, "Are you know that they asked them what? So what are the other agendas on on your uh, on, on your plate right now? You know, you've got this, but like if this weren't going on, what you know, what are you going to do?" And uh, what did he do? He he said something like, uh, "They go, what else do you talk about?" And he goes, "Oh, we don't talk about anything other than sex because that was just like the big pushback." People who were upset were showing up at city council meetings, like with with graphic depictions of of uh, of of sex that were you know real deviant and horrible right. and all this stuff, and they're trying to equate that with this this person who wants to rent your you know if, <laughs> if you rent a room out to this person, this is what's going to be going on under your roof, you know. And so Chalgur addressed that like, oh yeah, yes, yeah. <laughs> that's all we talk about. That's all we care about. So he was, yeah, he's Mr. Oh, one more thing about Shalgren. Yeah. So he's dying, right? He's up in the cities and he's in hospice. And, and, um, I got to interview him, I think just maybe very shortly before he died. And, um, first I'm talking to his mom and she's like, oh, yeah, I think he'll be able to, I think, is there anything you want me to ask him? Um, or she, she, she I can hear her hand the phone to Shalgren. She goes, it's Joe Tugas. He would like to know if there's anything you'd like to say to the people of Mankato. And I hear the phone shift. He goes, help. <laughs> <laughs> so funny to the end. Oh. Great guy. Well, that's a good place to transition then. I was going to ask you, um, at, at, at some point you got hired by the Free Press mm-hmm. as a full-time reporter. And you were hired, were you hired as a, as a public affairs reporter? I was hired as a... Uh, I was hired on a two-month basis in the summer. I was working my first newspaper job was at the New Ulm Journal. And it was far oh, away. Okay. It was like 25 miles away. And I was there almost a year when... And, and the free press was the, the, the grown-up newspaper. That's the newspaper you wanted to be at. I Every, forgot you had been at the journal. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So really wanted to ultimately work at the free press. And uh, then I think... Somebody got in touch with me from the free press, said, look, all summer, the, the, each reporter is going on vacation for like two weeks. So would you be interested in coming in and on for two weeks taking the education beat, for the next two weeks taking the uh, city government beat, for the next two weeks taking the cops and courts beat? I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Sounds that. like a lot of fun. Actually. Sounds like a lot of fun. But I had to quit the new home job, obviously, to do that. And I thought, well, that gives me a... Um, Foot in, the door. foot in the door. Yeah. And so I took that on, spent the summer, and on my last day, we had a little party at the uh, uh, South Street Saloon. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, I got a phone call. Oh, they, they gave me a card, you know. Everybody signed it. Hey, good luck with whatever's next. Hope you can come back and all this. Grant Moose said, he wrote on and he said, you aren't going anywhere. Or I predict you aren't going anywhere. And I thought, well, that's weird. Mm-hmm. But 
he had already accepted a position with the Rochester paper, so there was a vacancy, and I think it was already discussed. Like So the next morning, uh, slightly hungover, I get a call from uh, Tim Crone who says, you want a job? So, Tim Crone hired you? I think so, yeah. We're dropping a lot of names here. Uh, you mentioned Brian Ojampa. Yes. Great columnist for the pre-press. Yeah. Uh, and I retired. Tim Crone, current columnist and writer, great reporter. Yeah. Um, so what, what year was that? Do you 87. 87, okay. Is when I started full-time. And yeah. you were there for how many years? 17. 17 years? Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you think were the, the your favorite stories you wrote for the free press? I know one of the ones that I liked the most was you did the series in the filling station coffee house when it first opened up. Oh, yeah? Really nice. Yeah. Memorable piece. Um, but as as a writer of your stories, what, what do yeah. you think were the best pieces you did when you were there? Um, I liked, well, some of the short, fast ones. I really, I was proud of this one thing I did where uh, I took the, uh, the the Mensa test or whatever, and I, I described that. what the what I that feeling that. was like. It was yeah. hilarious. I thought it was really really funny. And the only thing. <laughs> The only reason I did it was because I needed a weekend story. I was weekend reporter, and you're required to do a story. And I had, and I'm not going to cover this Christmas tree, you know, or gingerbread making thing. But I heard that I don't know. I don't, anyway, so I I said I'm going to take the Mensa test, and it was just gibberish, you know, to, as far as I was concerned. I'm, so had you like sort of committed early on to say to whatever happened on this test, you were going to report on your results. Well, it, no, because I uh, I took the test, and then I had to write the story. The results didn't come in until like, oh, I see. much it, it later. later. But like, I got in. You know, I made Mensa, so passed. that is my you calling passed. card these days. <laughs> and my, my daughter Shocked Wendy, us all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Every time I do anything remotely stupid, which is often, my, when, my daughter Wendy just goes, Mensa boy. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so that one I enjoyed. That was kind of a quick hit, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of those. But uh, I remember hanging out with uh, Les Gimmer, who was a AIDS victim. He uh, had received the the virus through blood transfusion. He was a hemophiliac, and this miracle miracle drug came out that uh, would prevent you know the uh, the massive uh, hemorrhaging and such of uh, hemophilia, and, and uh, it wound up with uh, HIV and AIDS. So I hung out with him for a year or something as he slowly demised oh. and uh, hung out with him till his till his death and put that together as a package called Fathers and Sons because while I um, hung out with him, he had already lost two brothers, also hemophiliacs, to the same uh, oh. disease. And the fa- it was like a family of eight, I want to say. And uh, so I got, um, would hang out with his mom, his sisters, his wife. And it was a, uh, it was something else. It was really, uh, it was really obviously moving and kind yeah. of hard to describe. But uh, first thing he said to me was, "You ever see a man die?" That was our. That was the first thing he that said. Was to the first you. thing he said to me, and uh, so, yeah. Amazing. So that one, yeah, there's a bunch of others. Oh, I really liked. Toward the end of my time there, I started driving around and looking for places that are uh, long since gone like drive-in restaurants where there's maybe only a a pole left yep. and a gravel parking lot 
and then researching that at like whatever historical society and finding what that was in its glory days and uh, and sort of doing a then and now. Mm-hmm. I think I called it haunt, old haunts or something That's like right. that. Gave me a reason. I remember that. Gave me a, gave me a, it got you out of the office. It got me out of the office and drove around and it was really, uh, it was really fascinating finding uh, yeah, places in Vernon Center that mm-hmm. used to be the general store. Um, a place in uh, Cyril's that used to be uh, um, a grocery. Yeah, oh, man, it was crazy. It was really fun. It's one of the great things about being a journalist for a newspaper is you, you, you do get those projects that let you just mm-hmm. go driving around. Well, do, or do you? You know, I mean, because staffing is so well, minimal these days. It's definitely a different story now. Yeah. I don't think that you would be given no. the time you got at that time right. to do that project today. It's just a different. Well, maybe yeah. you would. So, and I got out. I quit when um, when I was still enthusiastic about the job, and I so think why, that was fading. So, why did you? Uh, why did you leave? Seventeen years. That that was just a little too. And and uh, I was a little too young to be that old. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think as a result of, I think. The free press created an arts beat, and I occupied it. So that was, you know, I, it was no longer like grabbing uh, something from the art side of things and bringing it into my regular beat as a feature. Now that was the beat. So I got more and more immersed in um, local art scene, which I found was, well, I found it long ago. It was quite active, worthy of its own beat, and uh, and it became one. And I think that got just me a little restless career wise like I, I really wanted to exercise somehow um a creative pull or maybe get into something get into a line of work that is a little more creative even though the the writing was but i i do think there was still um a structure there that i was that i you know uh felt a little restrained by if only because i had to be somewhere from eight to five you right. know um, my daughter, Samantha, was just born. So the timing was a little strange to like jump out of a job mm-hmm. right when you um, have a daughter born. But at the same time, there was this. And I remember uh, Shelly saying to me, well, she's she's not going to she's not going to want a dad who's sad or or, you know, feels constrained by uh, by by his work or whatever. So and I was already playing music and I was drawn to the, the literary scene here in town and I thought, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to jump and uh, I, I think I can get some freelance work. I'd already been dabbling in that and uh, and since then, it's been uh, it's been providing a, a meager living but uh, a living nonetheless and and it's a lot, it's, it's everything I'd hoped it'd be including long stretches of boredom, you know, uh, there's a lot of that because Boredom is highly underrated. <laughs> yeah, I know. I I can handle it. You know, I can handle it. But it's nice. So we can transition um, here then to music since you you did bring that up. Um, leaving yeah. leaving the free press didn't didn't start your music career. You've been doing it your whole oh yeah life yeah since high school I guess. I mean, sure. Had you been playing yeah all along well yeah you had, you had that band blue, blue velveta. velveta blue velveta doug leatherman and i um put that together and jay hunsey was in it ken bush uh a uh, 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 a few female leads uh rachel olson um then zila langshan <laughs> the famous zila langshan and then uh ann fee and ann is uh ann and i have been playing music since 
since then. And was it, were you called Fish Fry at first? Yeah. Yeah, Ann and I as a duo. Um, and did you start that while Blue Velveeta was yep. still going? Okay. Yep. Everybody in Blue Velveeta lived out of town except Ann and I. And so we, and she was sort of uh, new, new to the band. So it began with like showing her uh, songs that we were doing, working on stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I'm not sure exactly how this happened, but we started, well, we're both from the Chicago area. And we both listened to WLS um, 89 on your AM dial. We grew up listening to a lot of 70s pop tunes. And we hatched the idea of maybe doing an acoustic duo that specializes in uh, 80s bubblegum pop songs, you know, but doing it in in a certain format. And how hilarious that would be. And so we did. And and we would go over to um, the Sugar Room on Thursday nights and rehearse in public for four or five people, you know, <laughs> they were the, the, the Marty who ran it. No. Well, yeah, it was Marty who ran it. different Marty than, um, who ultimately grabbed it. But, um, he was like, yeah, well, we'll give you a free pizza, <laughs> you know? So he got free, he had free entertainment for a little bit. And then, uh, then we did the same thing in an open mic at, um, McGoff's, where McGoff's. Randy, who ran McGoff, said, "Hey, you guys want a regular thing here?" And he would give us little, little bit of money for it. So now we rehearsed Tuesday nights, uh, and we started writing our own mm-hmm. stuff. And this had a really sweet uh, harmony too, and it's just like a natural harmonizer, so that that works out nice. And I have a nice monotone that you know <laughs> that is nice and reliable. Uh, so, but yeah, so we hit it off. And have been doing that kind of stuff ever since. Far preferring uh, the creative outlet and uh, or or avenues. So Velvet is gone. Yes, but don't discount a reunion soon. Sure. We were just we we're all talking about that. Um, like so, any day now, I would think. Sure. It takes it takes phone calls right. and coordination right. and all that. But I know we're all eager to uh, to do that. Um, so your partnership with Ann produced also. Um, Hank and Rita, the best of Hank and Rita, mm-hmm. Ballroom Operetta, yeah, um, which you wrote, correct? Yep, yep. Um, of all the time that I've known you, of all the things you've produced, that that might be my favorite thing you've ever done. It uh-huh. was just, it was just stunning. If you haven't seen it, people, uh, you really missed something. Um, oh, but thanks. tell me about how that came about. Where, yeah. where did the idea come from? Um, the idea came. Um, Ann and I have been playing, had been playing, probably for like. 10 years um, as a duo all over the place and so so often I was in in meeting audience members or people saying hello and introducing themselves or saying they like the music always always asked are you guys married and you know I would say uh, no 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 but I got asked that so many times I thought all right, if I'm going to get asked this all the time I'm going to have some fun with it so People would then would say, "So are you guys married?" And I would look over at her across the room, and I'd say, "Not anymore." And they'd <laughs> they'd just do this take. They, and a lot of people said, "I didn't think you were married. You guys seem to be having too much fun, you know, for people mm-hmm. who are married." Right. And and we and we you know we would have conversations about that. Like, yeah, actually, it's more it's probably more interesting to go see a a, 
a cup a couple playing music who aren't married because you're sort of like what's what's the deal here? Whereas if they're married, you're just relax. Okay, they're going to play some pretty happy married tunes, you know. Yeah. So, so on the way home from, uh, uh, I think it was like India. I remember the night. It was on the way home from Indian Island Winery. I was telling Ann that hey, that happened again. You know, I was asked if we're married, and I said no, nah, not anymore. And then we just started a conversation like, you know, we should show up to a gig where nobody knows us and be married and be bitching at each other or just like re- clearly fresh from a fight yeah. or something like that and just lay it on the audience, like make it the most <laughs> uncomfortable thing. And and uh, that is the genesis of that. And, and I think in the course of a ride home, I said... Well, let's uh, let's get a script together, and she said, "Well, you get a script together, and you know, we'll we'll do it." So she had a day job. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you do the script. <laughs> yep. So it took a long time of us, and I didn't put a script together that night. You know, I wrote some notes about what this could be, and it wound up being way different. But every now and then, we'd encounter some situation at a gig where it'd be like, "Oh, you know what Hank would do?" We gave him names. We gave each other names. And, uh, oh, wouldn't this be something in the Hank and Rita thing? Yeah, you got to remember this. You got to remember this. And um, so there actually, then a script was constructed over a year, maybe, like an actual script that seemed, hmm, this is a lot to memorize and all this. And, but then it dawned on me um, how we could turn this into like what it ultimately became was a, a skeletal outline of where the story's going, but a lot of just hostility or pent up panic and with that little time bomb you know ticking underneath of her goodbye you know the the the, the show starts with her dear john letter yeah read to the audience in darkness and then the show begins and hank doesn't know that that's waiting for him backstage so there's immediate tension i was really happy with that idea and and uh so, so it, it, as it plays out though i mean every show is different because y- yeah there's no like set script beginning to end you have like loose yes there's cues there's cues we know what songs are next and the songs really drive you know the uh the direct the song the songs are the the what would otherwise be the uh the confrontations or the the back and forth the dialogue the heavy dialogue the stuff between though did that kind of evolve over time oh yeah to a point where so was it at the beginning of hank and rita's run and the end Mm -hmm. how different was the day-to-day show you would see and was it better at the end than it was when you began the show yeah it was much better at the end it was you you know you learn as you go along what Mm -hmm. works and what doesn't and uh we we got so comfortable with it that um i would have i would Instead of telling Ann, here's what Hank's going to say at this point, I, I'm thinking about something. I wouldn't tell her at all so that it's completely a surprise that she has to respond to in character. And, and I can't emphasize enough how in character she was in that thing. It just kind of blew people away. It blew me away. And I look at pictures now of her face, you know, as Rita. It would never it would never cease. And it was so not Ann. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's just like – and. I mean, Hank got to be loud and arrogant and, you know, I don't have too big a problem pulling that <laughs> off. Uh, but, yeah, so I was really happy with with, with that. And it, what, what's funny, too, is that Anne was like, once this started moving along in, in the creative process, she's like, no, I mean, you got to find somebody to do this. Um, and then she saw the songs 
and she was like, okay, hey, there's nobody else going to be doing this. This is, I'm, I'm taking this stuff. So she did, and I'm really glad because uh, it had a great effect on, on, on us and our confidence, I think, outside Hank and Rita. You know, it's just as, uh, you know, we, we felt like pros. So did, did the response you got from, from audiences surprise you? I mean, this was universally kind of loved. Mm-hmm. Did that surprise you? I mean, did you think it was going to be kind of... It really did surprise us because we thought this is either going to go like the night before we did our very first one. We thought, so this is going to go either fine or it's going to be the biggest WTF moment of an audience's, <laughs> you know, theater going career. Um, and we laughed at like, either way is going to work. Either way will be fine. I mean, if you plop uh, or, or not plop, that's exactly the word. But if you create something that has people scratching their head, uh, okay, so, so it goes. That's what a lot of art does. It fosters uh, contemplation and discussion and all that. Or, you know, uh, if they walk away with a really uh, uh, sharply affected by by this, and the latter was uh, by and large mostly the case, and uh, how they were affected by it, two ways. People came up to me and would say, "Nice job! That was really that was really good. You know, really really killed me, really slayed me." With Anne, she would get taken aside and told a lot of people's problems <laughs> i'm going through like the most terrible thing and and so and and she really was she was she was put in the role of i don't know like count on the spot counselor or mm-hmm. something all of a sudden people thought they are going to share their story with rita and they did and uh it, it a lot of that happened it was pretty interesting you'd have to ask her about the uh the uh, frequency, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was quite a bit. Sounds like a different look at kind of the audience you have and the way you're reaching people. If they talk to you about their problems. I mean, what you've done on stage really has affected them in a deep way. That was that was really that kind of happened, and and I was really I was like you said I was surprised by it. I was really moved by it. I would get phone calls. Again, I wasn't I wasn't told anybody's problems or anything like that, but I but I was congratulated and and and. Um, People would talk about how it affected them and uh, in in some pretty elaborate ways, and I you know, was very happy with that. So, so what we're going to do right now actually is um, we're going to listen to a song from the Hank and Rita soundtrack. This song is called "Words You'll Never Hear Again." torn up these hills I've buried my guns The rain has washed me to your door And you say you don't know me anymore But you used to love me And we have both been here before Here's where I told you I could live without you There's where I said You should pray It's been so long And those words were all wrong And I've come here to take them away And put them back Make them go 
nothing back I miss you so Put them back Just like pretend Words you'll never hear again When we were young You said all you want Was to laugh out loud Once in a while It hurts to see The memories of me Kill even the chance Of a smile So what can I tell you If my words hurt you How can I ever Make it clear That my pride was down I'll replace those words right now And every day from here Put them back, make them go Put them back, I need you so Put them back, just like the ten Words you'll never hear move on um i want to ask you about national brew fest <laughs> um which was early 2000s mid 2005 2006 2005, okay. 2007 so national brew fest if people don't know what that was it was uh it, if you've been to the mankato craft beer festival it was that but 10 years earlier right and outside mm-hmm. with music yeah and but, and the potential to be super cool. Mm-hmm. Um, it lasted three years? Three years. So tell me about, and we've talked about this before, it was kind of a whirlwind slash nightmare slash exhilarating. Yeah, it would have been an award-winning documentary it, the, the, first, uh, the first year we put it together. My friend Jim Gerke, who was also a free press guy long yeah. ago, um, he hatched the, uh, the idea of, uh, of this thing. Uh, which was, hey, craft beers are really, he, he, had, he had done some traveling and he, he said, you know, craft beers are, 
really hot right now out somewhere and we could put together a uh, or he's, he's thinking about put backdrop to this he and i always wanted to meet bob dylan so <laughs> how can we meet bob dylan and we went to uh we spent a good summer putting together a concert idea in um ah uh, i can't remember where it's 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 down south somewhere but there's a ski hill that we thought we wanted to basically do a people's fair, but around Bob Dylan. And it was going to be in a different town. And we went down there. We talked to city planners. We talked to everybody. Uh, but the we would need some money up front. And, I mean, we did the math. We were ready to launch this thing. And then we called Bob Dylan's people. So how much is it going to cost to get old <laughs> Bob down here? And the price tag was like, uh-oh. <laughs> That's going to – I don't know if we're going to be able to pull that. Like, like, what was the price tag? He had to be over. It was outlandish. Um, and we thought it'd be cheap because he's around. He's touring all the time. Oh, God. I wish I could remember. I can't. But, I, re- you know, it was like um, $175,000 or oh something God. like that. And the guy says, well, we can get it down to maybe $150,000. You know, and don't quote me on that or jot that down but it was that outrageous and like oh all right never mind but meanwhile we had done we'd figured out how we were going to fund it we had figured out everything from how much the the porta potties are going to cost and 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 what tickets should be if the cost is and anyway so we always had that stuff in the back of our heads and then he uh showed up for coffee once or no at the we had lunch at the um uh, long uh, yeah, God loved Vin Long. Anyway, and so he said, "Craft, I think we could do something with craft beer. And uh, so we got to talking, and it was going to be the best of both worlds. Mankato loves its classic rock. Yep. And so we were going to get classic rock bands, and we were going to bring in uh, beer vendors of, of all stripes, who, and, and the, that evolved into Brewfest. And the first year, how did that go? Uh, the first year, I worked all... It was a full-time job. It was a full-time job plus overtime, and I only lost $1,500 when all was said and done. But we're faxing in faxing in contracts to pay uh, the Little River Band um, <laughs> something like, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, like $20,000. It's like, where are you going to get that money? <laughs> you just hope you sell tickets. And, I mean... We were able to get sponsorships and the kind of thing to where we were we were spending other people's money, uh, but really putting our own time and effort and mm-hmm. crossing your fingers that you're, you know, this income you're not having from other sources is going to show up uh, when it's time to sell tickets. So that's what makes it especially fun on the night before your two-day festival where you look at the legal pad and you announce to your wife that uh so all we need to do tomorrow is uh make eighteen thousand dollars and we'll be fine <laughs> and as you look at the television screen uh in the kitchen where keyc has uh the weather forecast there is the a cartoon of a duck with a raincoat on and an <laughs> umbrella and it's mon- monsooning over the smiling <laughs> duck and you know and that the weather person says well for those of you getting out this weekend, be sure to bring your raincoat because it's going to be rain, rain, rain. It didn't rain, but that was one small heart attack uh, the night rain. before. Okay. It didn't rain. It didn't rain the uh, the first night. There was a, uh, 
I think a tornado warning the second day, black skies, right as the opening, you know, so it's a Sunday, black skies, tornado warning, and it passed. So So then the first one was successful, you would say. Well, as an event. As an event. Maybe you didn't rake in a lot of money from it, but it was successful. Everybody got paid. We didn't make it well, and and the uh, it was successful in that sense. Yeah, Yeah. a good time, great entertainment. And so you're pro- and so at that point you're say okay now we know what we're doing we're going to plan for year two and exactly. this is going to be amazing but yeah. um, at, at, at this point can you talk about what happened with the city and how things didn't quite as, as I recall and correct uh-huh. me if I'm wrong but yeah. there were some issues with the city yeah plenty um, that kind of prevented you from doing the kind of festival you wanted to do the third the th- the second year went smooth smoother. Second year, really, and the second year made a little money. You know, I think I lost 1500 in the first year. Second year, I think I made 1500 So okay. I was like, okay. Eh. Um, and there were all sorts of, uh, and I could go on forever about um, the, the obstacles. That's why I was saying it, making an interesting documentary because there's like one obstacle after another. But the third year, um, we had a police chief who all of a sudden um, turned a corner on this and I'm trying to think of, uh, yeah, he uh, he said this is illegal. He we, declared uh, it illegal. Are we going to name names here? No. Okay. No. Um, but, you know, do, do the research. We, anyway, he said it was illegal. I'm like, but, but, but this is what they do in City Pages Brewfest, and there are brewfests all over the state mm-hmm. that are doing this exact thing. Well, that's that's... That might be why they don't answer my phone calls because I call them to tell them it's illegal. <laughs> and so, okay, I think we said we'll we'll just move this to North Mankato. Then they were welcoming us with open arms, oh. you know, potentially or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, then there was some um, some discussion, and then Mankato City said, "Well, you can have it here." But you're gonna have to have punch cards so people can only get one sample of each beer, and as opposed to sampling for three hours, which is how the model had been, three hours of free beers and teeny weeny glasses, and then the the sampling shuts down, and then you sell beer, and that's where you make your money, and on that went just fine. Uh, this time around, the lines were. So long because people, we had to get these long. People were rushing to get um, all their beers, right? I well, we had to have we had to give everybody punch cards. That then the the beer guys who were supposed to be delivering uh, cups to everybody had to then punch a card, and it was just it was it was congestive. It was uh, just it it had city overkill all over it, you know. Uh, and a lot of a lot of a lot of complaints, and and then it and just sort of fell some, apart. Was there some pre-event confusion too about how the event was going to work? No, I don't think it was confusion. I just think it was resistance. Uh, again, from the from the police chief. Okay. Um, and I it, n- no, the city was always saying, you know, you guys just keep keep it up because we're going to be able to put this at that new park we're building. So the city was supportive to a degree. Mm -hmm. 
there was some real disagreements at the t- not disagreements, um, but at the last minute, uh, all of a sudden, resources we thought we'd have from the city were no longer available, like tents and things like that. Oh. Because at first, there's like, yeah, we'll throw all the tents you want it, and then it's time to get the tents, and it's like, well, no, that's, we're going to have to rent those Would you from do it someone again? else. Would you do all this again? Would you do Brewfest again if you had a chance? Oh, I don't know. Uh, when I see... I always say it was a little ahead of its time because it was, was say that, yeah. you know, because when I look at now, um, there's the, the Mankato, whatever it's called, the brew festival comes in. It's three hours or four. Hours, I don't know. I haven't gone to it out of like jealousy or whatever, but, um, it's a good time. but it's like 40 bucks. It's a good time. And every, the whole town goes ape shit over it. You know, yeah. like everybody's just so, yeah, I look upon it with a little bit of like, gotcha. cause we thought, yeah, we could, we could do well with this, you know? Um, the biggest culprit, and I don't mind naming names here. <laughs> the biggest culprit, Marshall Tucker Band. Oh, do you remember this? Uh, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> All right. So we drop a lot of money to get Marshall. We're gonna slam dunk this one, right? Yeah. We're gonna get Marshall Tucker Band, and uh, they cost quite a bit, but we know what we're doing. We know what we're doing. Things are lining up. Well, at the same time, we're going back and forth with the police about this punch card thing and, and whether we're going to move it or not and do all this stuff. And there's other resistance, and I'm sure. Um, we hired Marshall Tucker Band. So this day of the show, Marshall Tucker Band shows up. Now, what do they have? They have, uh, I told you, we love our classic rock around here. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't love Marshall Tucker Band? Hurting in a love song. Can't be wrong. You know, they got another one. Good enough, right? Right. But it's and it's the same guy at least. You know, so we got him. All right, Marshall Tucker Band. The day's going beautifully, despite the ticket thing. Day's going fine. So Zeke and I are going to introduce the Marshall Tucker Band. So I'm up there waiting for the opportunity to take the mic, and I'm standing next to the lead singer of the Marshall Tucker Band. He's a walking bottle of Chivas Regal. He's drunk. He's oh smashed. And uh, I, Zeke and I go up there, ladies and gentlemen, the Marshall Tucker Band. And yay. We leave. Marshall Tucker Band's doing their thing. This guy's standing there, roaring, you know, uh, out a song, something like that. First song's over. He's like, everybody, how's everybody doing? Everybody's, yeah. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't, I don't tell you the story of a dang old friend of mine. He would sit me down. He would say, you horse, you going to, oh, I miss him so much. And I got to tell you, you know, he would say to me, and the band is strumming and strumming and looking at each other like, what the hell, man? I'm going to tell you one thing. And, and he said, you're going to have a good time. And so that's what... I'm going to do it now. We're going to have a good time. And everybody goes, yay. All right. Finally, that story is over. He goes, and I want to tell you one more thing. This goes on. People are picking up their lawn chairs. (laughs) They are folding the lawn chairs. They're going away. Now, keep in mind, I was told at uh, afterward, I was told at festivals like this, you make your money in beer. That's where, you know. Uh, not just festivals like this, but any concert, the money's in the in the beer. That's why it costs eight bucks at a ball game. Is why it costs. So, when you sell the most beer, is not during the show. It's after the show. 
when everybody's like, that was great. And you go, you buy, and every, that's when every, that's when the money comes in. And we're watching the money just walk <laughs> out. People shaking their heads saying, this is, this is gross. Two and a half hours, I, and people are now shouting, sing something, you know? So and then they play some crap song. This goes on the whole night. Never plays Heard It In A Love Song. <laughs> Never played the song people came to hear. So I got on I got on the phone, and I said, We're, I got to get some money back from you guys. You, ca-, I said, the 60s are gone. You know, the days of getting up there drunk uh, passed away with Jim Morrison pretty much. This is, it's not cute. It wasn't cool. You cost us a ton of money, and... But they had me, you know, unless it was an act of God or something. There's nothing in those thick contracts that say if the guy's, you know, soused, you get your money back. No, nothing like that. So they sorry paid. I missed it. Oh God, I'm sorry I missed that one. So, and I and that's and then I, and so when Zeke and I got together for like, okay, let's play in the next one. I heartbreakingly said, I can't do this. You know, oh, really? it is a full time job. I'm not kidding. We would have we would have en- envelope stuffing parties to send ticket forms to people and and season ticket or whatever you know yeah. and uh, so big education in a lot of that stuff I knew how to work with promoters and and everybody up and down the line and how to meet with sponsors and so as an event planner I guess I could add that to my resume if I wanted to it was uh, it was a crazy crazy thing my dad said he never saw me work harder. <laughs> First year, man. First year, I get up, put on a pair of jeans on a hot, hot summer day. I'm going to go down there to the site to just check it out. Eventually, I'll put on more comfortable clothes. No, there was not a, a, a spare two minutes to change clothes. So, and, and all I did was walk, 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 walk. So my my, my legs were uh, and my jeans were. It was just. It was gross. It was gross. They melded together. Yeah. And, yeah. So. Well, we have been on. Uh Talking here for a long time. This is terrible. Um, there was some stuff I wanted to get to, but uh, okay. I think we're going to maybe skip some of that stuff. Unless we can do it quickly. Yeah, I'll give you one line. Uh, you did a show for a time on local access called Dead Air. Yeah, me and Mark Halverson thought it would be funny. Grateful Dead. Kind of was. Kind of was? Yeah. We just wanted to talk. Show. We were going to do a news show that would always dissolve into talking about the Grateful Dead. So then we said, well, let's just skip the funny part and just talk about the Grateful Dead. And yeah. we did that for a year. It was fine. A year? Okay. I, well, it might have been more. Because people, people still call for you at the Free Press, oh, by the they? way. Good, good. And they'll ask about you. Yeah, I remember him. You did that Dead Air show. It was amazing. And I, I've, I've never seen it. Do they, do they still show it on no, local access? No, no, okay. I hope not, man. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we, we it was funny. I mean, okay. we, we sit there stone-faced and... Uh, um, not literally, but I mean, you know, just right. no, 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 right, right, right. And we'd have guests on, and you know, stinging questions like, "So, what's your favorite Grateful Dead song? <laughs> what's your favorite Grateful Dead album? What is your favorite? How many Grateful times Dead have song? you seen the Grateful Dead? My favorite Grateful Dead song is probably Jack Straw. Let it be known. Um, Air drummer. Oh yeah, another public access. Oh, I'm so proud jam. of that. Love that one. I want to redo it. I want to. I want to revisit Air Drummer. That was uh, just a cable access movie that uh, disturbed a great many people. Quick plot summary. Uh, a guy has a side side hustle business. He shows up and 
<laughs> you've you've heard of air guitar, and this guy was an air drummer. He was an air drummer. And the song he would drum to <laughs> was Stairway to Heaven, which doesn't have any drums right. <laughs> for the first four minutes. Right. And he gets called for a, he's an emergency fill-in for he gets a, called for a kid's the clown, birthday party. The clown for a kid's birthday party. He's arrested. And by the way, I'm in that movie. Oh, and you, I'm let's hear cop. your line. Let's hear your line. What's my, oh, uh. <laughs> Shit! What's my line? Oh, I can't something remember. Something about a uh, <laughs> clown, right? Clown, t- time's up, clown, or something. <laughs> <laughs> me, and, me and Christina Pellucci are dressed up like cops. We're frisking PJ Slinger, PJ. who's on the phone. Who's on the phone on calling? The phone. <laughs> calling the mom of this kid's party, saying he's not going to make it. That was that was my claim to fame. Yeah, uh, and so the the line was like, "Time's up, clown!" Yeah, and just grab his phone. Yeah, <laughs> and so the air drummer comes in, and oh. there's these kids waiting for a clown, and they get the air <laughs> drummer, and it's uh, oh, this thing devolves into. And the, my favorite part about scene. editing that film was that there were genuinely funny parts that I removed because I didn't want it I didn't want it any obvious funny part. I wanted this to be like a really sad thing <laughs> which to me is hilarious, you know? But like there's a great scene of the clown being chased by you guys, yep. you know, big feet running, you know, yep. hilarious scene, but it's too no, no. That that's too easy to laugh. That will relieve tension. And uh, and I didn't want any tension relieved in this yeah. thing. I just wanted and got angry phone calls asking what what the hell is this? And it was I remember this this group again. Dude, I got the guy on the phone. The guy who I got the guy. Hey man. So oh, yeah. that was fun though. Tim Larson yep. as the air drummer. As the air drummer. Did a great job. Yeah. Uh okay, moving on. Um Party Guy. Oh. Another Joe Tugas creation that yeah. involved me. That's uh, that was our collaboration. You did the heavy you did the heavy lifting on that one. So, Party Guy was very simple concept. Mm-hmm. It's just a guy smiling on a TV screen, and the point be- and the idea behind it was, if you're having a party and you want to have one more face in the room, you've got you put this tape on VHS tape at mm-hmm, that time, mm-hmm. and there's Party Guy. He's one more, and he's enjoying happy himself. Guy. He's enjoying <laughs> himself, but there's no sound. It's just right. But if people had been there for the taping of it, mm-hmm. they would have. It was a half an hour of just me. No, staring it was one at, hour. Was it an hour? An hour, a full hour. One hour of me just looking at the camera. Yeah, not looking off to the side because then you're not, you know, you, you're not focused on the camera, and you're you're then looking. You're, so that the goal was that when you have this showing at a party and you're looking at the TV, it's looking back at you directly at you. And so the reason I was able to keep smiling the whole time was because the whole time you're telling me jokes and yeah. telling me stories, <laughs> trying to keep me interested, yeah. trying to uh-huh. keep me smiling. Right. Um, and yeah, that was hard. Yeah. Oh my God. There was, yeah. And there was some direction, right? Like you're having a great time yep. and you know, oh, and there's somebody, they're telling you a really interesting story and you mm-hmm. know, you'll, you raise your eyebrows Sometimes and you're, I act like you're I'm nodding to someone's and, story. Yeah. yeah. But just smiling, never Absolutely. saying a word. Oh uh, yeah. That was... I don't know. We and then we were gonna we were gonna market that. We and were, try and, and we still should make it a thing. We could put it on uh, YouTube though and just give it away. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Actually, maybe because I look so young in that. Right. Right. In that thing, maybe. Yeah. 
You held up in some great feet. Uh, I still get people asking me about any, anybody who knows that that was done. Yeah. Whenever they see me, like Mark Halverson, whenever he sees me, he calls me party guy. <laughs> party guy. Yeah. So that was a good time. Uh, and the last thing I want to ask you about is one that never got done. Oh. We need copy. Oh, I think about that all the time still. So this is a Let's sick- not even talk too much about it because I think it's a, it's a great – Someone will steal can, it. Yeah. yeah. No, but yeah. This idea for a sitcom that we came up with <laughs> based on the crazy shit that happens in the newsroom where you – Of a small town. Of a small town where you just – you need – you need copy. Something to write about. We call it copy in the, yeah. in the news business. You need a story. You need something with a photo. And it doesn't matter what it is as long as it's got a source, it's got a photo, <laughs> it goes in the paper. So we came up with these weird scenarios. And I think we launched that idea because of something you had to um, cover with the dog. It wasn't me. It was Bob Fenske had a oh, story. So oh. there was two police forces in, in the region that got canine <laughs> units. And we thought, okay, let's... Let's we, call these cops and we'll get these dogs together and we'll and we'll do a story on on that. And so Fansky gets them together and the two do- <laughs> the cops show up and the two dogs get together and they don't like each other and they get into a fight and one of them gets injured so bad he can't be a canine cop anymore. <laughs> but they're but that it's just like everybody wants to roll stuff out because the newspapers right. here, you know. So yeah. they're gonna, even though they didn't, they wouldn't ordinarily be where they were. But nope. the newspapers here, they're gonna do a story. <laughs> Newspaper calls. Yeah, you can. Of course, it. we're gonna come out. Sure. Yeah, it'll be a good community story. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was kind of that that story and the crazy circumstances. Yeah. Great idea. Dogs don't get injured all the time, but weird stuff like that. Right, I mean, right. People just, if we need something, people will just, yeah, I'll come and meet you wherever you want. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's not part of my schedule today, but I'll be there. Sure. And that things happen like that a lot. It's kind of fine. That was, that was our story. That was our idea for a sitcom called We Need Copy. Um, so I like to wrap up these. Trademark that name because that's a good, we good title. We I like to wrap up these podcasts with, as you as you may know, if you've listened to... After you edit them, I hope. Uh, this is straight. <sighs> I don't take anything out, man. But right. I ask weird questions. Yes, I know. The would you rather questions. And I've got a few that I chose for you. Mm. So, you ready for them? I guess. Okay. You know, I, I'm not a fan, but go ahead. You're not a fan? Sure. Nobody's a fan. But the answers have been interesting to me. <sighs> would you rather live the rest of your life... With silent but uncontrollable gas or loud, uncontrollable sneezing? What's the first one? Silent, silent. uncontrollable gas. Uh, like you're farting all the time. Yeah, yeah. But it's silent. It's silent. So no one yeah. can really pin that on you, but... I guess sneezing only because... Uh, I have uh, hay fever, so I'm used to it. And actually, I've lived that life uh, mm-hmm. until, and this explains a lot of my uh, academic uh, uh, failure, is uh, I was prescribed Benadryl as a child uh, all th- and all through high school to take two doses of Benadryl in the morning and go to, and, and go to school. Just like regular Benadryl? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh. Back when it was prescription. That's a really bad idea. It was a really bad idea. <laughs> and I had really bad hay fever, but at the time, they said, oh, just take uh, two Benadryls in the morning and maybe one in the, or a couple in the afternoon. So I did to quell the the sneezing and the and watery eyes. But um, I, I, I kind of always looked stoned anyway. And the, uh, but I remember needing to, um, my friends told me in English class in high school or something, I said, uh, I, maybe I got called to the office or I said, or I had to leave, I had to leave class. And uh, as I walked out the door, the English teacher said, well, I think we know what he's been doing all morning. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I have this uh, look, and, and I think my... Uh, my <laughs> Speaking of that, can I... Bring, can I what? Can we, can we bring up the time somebody... Said he always looks drunk. Ooh, I don't know. When who said that? No, okay. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think I want to. Okay, but I do. <laughs> I do always look drunk. That's kind of fun. We we won't mention that. Okay. Yeah. Right. I always looks drunk. It's a great, gets me out of a lot of trouble. Sure. Um, would you rather be able to freeze time or travel in time? Uh, freeze. Would you rather know how you are going to die or when you're going to die? How? Why? Uh, so, well, let's see. So in other words, I look at a crystal ball and it says, uh, you're going to fall off a cliff. Yeah. Well, then I know. That question's over. Okay. You know? <laughs> All right. Whereas, you know. You want to know how much time you have left, though? Because that cliff could kind of yeah, I, yeah that's I, I would think that'd be the, I'm, I'm challenging myself to not go with the obvious answer I guess yeah to know when then well that allows me time to prepare and say what I need to say and all this stuff right. ah, that takes the juice out of it okay. I'd rather yeah I'd rather just kind of know how okay. and uh, still wait for that surprise to happen like well would you rather this is the last one okay would you rather meet your favorite fictional character or your favorite musician Uh, clearly the musician. I hate, I hate to go with the obvious, but I'm trying to think of who my favorite fictional character would be. Probably Garp. Um, I was just kind of rereading that. Um, yeah, so I'll just go with that, my favorite musician, which I've already done. Bob Dylan? No, it would be Frank Zappin, so bucket list, done, check. There you go. Um, my favorite current musician would probably be Tom Waits, I guess, or Bruce Springsteen. Either one of those guys would be cool to meet. All right. Again. Um, again? I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, that's that's it. Thanks wow. for coming on the podcast, Joe. Well. This has been a lot of fun. I, I hope so. I won't be offended if you don't air this, because uh, I don't know what was accomplished, but I really enjoyed it. Fun. Good. Always, you know, just getting together with you always is, is uh, there, yeah, there's bound to be like laughter until tears it's a shame we had to have a podcast to talk about oh for an hour so well now it's like well, we'll have to do another podcast sounds good um <laughs> thanks again joe yeah you bet and i'll have you on my show on kmsu sounds good and we'll swap roles do i'll do it groovy man all right thanks yeah.